Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Judith Berenger joins the show again on April 30th, 2021. Dr. Berenger joined the show and we had a conversation about ancient Olympia. And we talked about several things in that conversation. One of the items that we spoke in detail about were the ancient Olympic Games. And so Dr. Berenger is back on the show today and we're going to have a, an episode that is dedicated and we're going to speak in even more detail about the ancient Olympic Games. Dr. Berenger is Professor of Greek Art and Archaeology at the University of Edinburgh based in Scotland. She has written numerous publications over her career, including authoring the forthcoming book, Olympia, A Cultural History, which will be published by Princeton University Press and is scheduled for release in October 2021. And Dr. Berenger joins the show today from Berlin in Germany. Welcome back on the show, Judy. Thank you, Andrew. I'm delighted to be here. It's great to connect with you again, <clears throat> Judy. So to create enough background and context for the conversation, Judy, and then of course we can work our way into the details as normal, can you share what the ancient Olympic Games were? Of course. Um, ancient Olympics, excuse me, ancient athletics um, for, for a very long time were entirely religious in nature. And in fact, all sports events, all sports events in the ancient Greek world um, were religious in nature first. They were not a secular uh, event as games are today, as, as athletics are today. But uh, games were performed in honor of a god, and the ancient Olympic Games were, according to legend, founded around 776 BC. That's the first date that we have for the games, although we suspect that they were probably much older than that. These Olympic Games were held in honor of the god Zeus, that is the head of the Greek pantheon of gods altogether. And um, this was the first uh, kind of games, a set of games or a set of athletics that were open to all Greeks. That is, they were pan-Hellenic in nature. So this wasn't just a, a local festival, although it probably began as a local festival, but it grew very quickly into something much, much bigger than simply a local festival or a regional festival, but came eventually to include all Greeks within its orbit. And this was the first such games, and as I said, devoted to the god Zeus, the head of the pantheon. Um, the first games we, we are told by legends later consisted chiefly, first and foremost, of a foot race. Um, one length of the stadion, we use the word stadium today, at Olympia, and then we know that additional events that were uh, added to the games began with track and field things and then eventually moved on to other areas, including by the 5th century BC, chariot racing and various kinds of equestrian sports. What's known, thank you, Judy, for providing that background on this topic. What's known about how the games started? Uh, this came up a bit in the last conversation we had with the ancient uh, ancient Olympia but I want to I want to cover it in this 
um, conversation, obviously, as well. So what's, what's known in terms of how the game started, or are there some popular traditions uh, that, that surround the, the origins of the games? Well, ancient myth gives us several accounts of how the games were founded. Um, according to one tradition, Heracles founded the games in honor of his father, the god Zeus. In another tradition, Zeus himself founded the games in honor of his conquering or overthrow of his father, Kronos. Um, and then we have another tradition where we have a, a myth uh, really fully attached to it. And that concerns the local hero of Aelis, the city that controlled Olympia. This hero's name is Pelops. And the myth is that Pelops defeated another ruler from another city, a guy called Oinemaeus from Pisa, not the Pisa in Italy, but a Pisa that's located very close to Olympia. So the myth is that Pelops of Aelis defeated Oinemaeus of Pisa in a chariot race and that this was the founding event of the Olympic Games. And this myth, and I just gave you the, the barest outline of it, this myth seems to um, correspond to an actual historical event when Aelis, the city of Aelis, defeated the city of Pisa um, or, and, and took control of Olympia in the, sixth, the late sixth century BC. So, Mm, this is a late, later mythological tradition, uh, and in, in fact, we have these varying traditions about how the games were founded, but in fact, factually, we know nothing about how they actually arose. In some of these early centuries with the, with the games, uh, what are the main sources that scholars rely on, and why the, the Pelops tradition, for instance, why is that one landing? Why, why do you feel that one lands more as myth and, and doesn't have sufficient historicity? Well, the, the fact is that we don't know that a person named Pelops or Oinemaeus ever existed. We don't have a list of kings from Aelis or a list of kings from Pisa um, to, in, in some historical document to verify that these were real persons. That, the, that Aelis took control of the games from Olympia, took, excuse me, took control of the site from Pisa, and took control of the games from Pisa is a fact. That's factually known. And we know it from ancient historians who mention this, um, various ancient writers, uh, and we have that piece of information as solid. So the myth seems to have grown up around that, um, or was created to explain this event. Um, it is possible, of course, that the city of Aelis itself propagated this myth um, to, to um, make a grander claim to the site of Olympia and their conquest of Pisa. Um, another um, uh, source that propagated this myth is Pindar, the poet, uh, who was writing in the 5th century BC and who wrote victory, uh, victory poems in honor of the various Olympic victors. And in his first Olympic victory uh, poem, um, he speaks about this myth. And this poem was created around 476 BC, so not so very long after Aelis gained control of Pisa. And this this poem uh, was very well known, and it was publicly 
um, performed. So this may also have been one of the sources for the propagation of this myth and its later historicity, because Pindar, of course, was a poet who was well known in antiquity long after his death. He was famous among other ancient authors. How often or frequently did the games occur and how many consecutive days would they occur for when they were occurring? Um, as was the case until very recently, the, the Olympic Games occurred on a four-year cycle. And when they began, we, we, or I should say early in their history, they consisted of three days. But by the beginning of the fifth century BC, those games were extended to five days. Um, and so they became longer over time and more elaborate. Uh, and by the time we get into the Roman period, uh, the games have been, have been were extended to a week. So it was quite a bit of time uh, for the spectators to be at the site if they were all there at one time. We know that by the fourth century BC, there were some 45,000 spectators of the Olympic Games. Okay. You mentioned earlier they were Pan-Hellenic. Um, can you expand on, on that in terms of um, what rules were in place for um, the, the, the domicile of, of athletes and also in terms of um, what genders could, com could compete? Okay. Um, uh, before I go to that, I actually just want to add something to the last, mm -hmm. to the last mm -hmm. response which is that um, the Olympic Games, I said, were on a four-year cycle. And by the time we get to the 6th century BC, the 500s BC, there are three other sets of Pan-Hellenic Games. And they also occurred on a four-year cycle. And they would stagger these games so that the Olympic Games would occur in one year, the Games at Delphi would occur in the second year, the Games at Nemea, um, in another year, and the games at Ismia in yet another year. And then they would begin again with the cycle of Olympia the first year, Delphi the second year, and so on. So just to fill out that picture a little bit. So it's not as if there are no games at all in a four-year cycle, except for the Olympic Games once every four years. Oh, that now, yeah. Oh, I want to, yeah, it's very interesting, Judy. I, I do actually want to follow up then on, on that last point that, that you made so so that I'm understanding it correctly um, and please clarify in, in in the response but at some point it um, yeah I might not have the the exact century so please um, um, clarify in in your in your response but was it so so was it um, games in one spot then in, in one year uh, and then and then a, and then games in a second second spot games in a third spot and then the f the fourth year was off did I understand that correctly you know the fourth year there were four different locations oh I understand and, okay yeah four different locations and so you got it right so in one year it was in one location and then the following year was in another location and they weren't Olympic games the Olympic games only took place at Olympia at each of these different locations these were each one of these was a sanctuary to a different god and they had their own name. So for example, the games in Delphi were the Pythian games, um, which, and these are games in honor of the god Apollo. Yes, yeah, and I, and I knew of the, the Delphi games, but I didn't know before that interconnection between the games. So thank you for, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Okay, yeah, did you wanna go back to uh, who could compete in the games? Yeah, who could compete in the games? So they had to be Greeks. 
And we don't know what kind of vetting process existed for this. We know that prior to the Olympic Games, heralds were sent out from Olympia, from Elis, um, to various parts of the Greek world to announce the, uh, the upcoming games and to invite people to come and compete. We don't know all the locations where they went. We do, however, have a tradition that there was some means of testing whether someone was Greek or not, because we know that in the fifth century BC, the king of Macedonia, who was called Philip I, um, Philip I wanted to compete in the games and he was refused because he was Macedonian. And so he concocted in some way um, a, a lineage that went back to the hero Heracles so that he could prove his Greekness to compete in the Olympic Games, and in fact, he was admitted. So um, there was some kind of measure, but we don't have information about precisely what that measure was or how it was conducted. As for the, the sex of the participants, the Olympic Games were, um, were solely restricted to males um, in different age classes. The spectators at the Games were only allowed, um, excuse me, I want to rephrase that, were both male and female, but only unmarried women were permitted to watch the competitors compete in the Olympic Games. And we have to keep in mind that the Olympic competitors were not only male, but they were nude. Um, married women were uh, forbidden from watching the Olympic Games according to the ancient writer Pausanias, who's writing in the second century AD, they were forbidden from watching uh, the Olympic competitors on pain of death. Now, we don't know if this uh, regulation existed before the time of Pausanias. Again, that's the second century AD. Um, but it is interesting that, that we have this prohibition. However, there is a second set of games that took place at Olympia, not simultaneously with the Olympic Games. And this, um, these were a set of games for girls, not women, but for girls, also in different age classes. And these games were in honor of the goddess Hera, the wife of Zeus. And this festival was called the Heraia. And we only know about foot races, and we have no other information about other events or how long it took. Um, we have a single written source for the Haraya festival, and that again is the author Pausanias writing in the second century AD. So we don't know if the Haraya foot race for girls existed earlier, um, but I think there's pretty strong evidence that it did exist uh, in the fifth century BC. Is it, is it known how many days the Haraya went no. for? Nope, we don't know how long the Haraya went for, and we only know about a single foot race, or, or I should say a single foot race for different age classes. So it would be two or three different age classes that would compete each with each other. So there would be two or three different races. And one assumes this was also on a, a modified length of the stadion. It wasn't as long as the male race. And um, so it wouldn't have taken long. Uh, so we don't know how long it was. We know that the prize um, for the winner of the Haraya foot race was uh, a portion of the, the cows that were sacrificed to Hera. 
Um, and, uh, and they were also able to set up an image of themselves at Olympia. We don't have any such images of these girls um, that were erected by the victors remaining to us. Okay. So why did athletes uh, compete uh, in known or inferred? Why did they compete and what, what in, in the ancient Olympic Games and what could they win? Okay, so um, it may be easier to answer the second question first. Mm -hmm. um, the prize for the winner of the Olympic Games, whatever the race was, whatever the competition was, was an olive crown, a, a crown made from olive branches. And that was the sole tangible prize. Um, so that doesn't sound like much. But uh, we know that the, the real prize, the real thing, that they won and coveted was glory. Um, that they they wanted everlasting glory. Um, and we know that the winner in the Olympic Games, particularly in the foot race, but in all of the competitions, the winners were regarded um, with awe by uh, by the spectators and by by writers and uh, by the populace in general. And um, so this kind of everlasting glory um, was the real goal of these athletic competitors and uh, was an inducement for them to compete. Now, this doesn't mean that there weren't other rewards. And we know, so at Olympia, they got just the vegetal, vegetal crown and of course they achieved this great glory. The victors at Olympia, like the victors in the Haraya, were also entitled to put up images of themselves in the sacred area at Olympia. The sacred area at Olympia is called the Altus. And they were allowed to put up images of themselves in the Altus where stood images of gods and heroes. And they were permitted to put up their images in this company of images of gods and heroes. So this was a very, very special uh, honor for the Olympic victors. And we don't know that this honor was extended to the other three sets of Pan-Hellenic Games. We know that there were victory monuments at Delphi, for example, but where they were located is completely unknown to us. We don't know if they were uh, there amongst the gods and heroes. But at Olympia, this was something very special. Um, so they had these um, rewards at Olympia itself. But when these athletes would go home to their hometowns, they were often rewarded by their cities with extraordinary honors. For example, in some cases, the, the victorious Olympic victors were given um, front row seats in the theater for life. Now that doesn't sound like much, but some of the other things are pretty impressive. In some cases, they were provided with free um, board and free food, free meals for the rest of their lives. And in some cases, they were tax exempt in their cities for the rest of their lives. So these rewards back at home were actually quite substantial in some cases. Um, and we know that, uh, that victory odes, as I mentioned earlier, Pinder wrote victory odes on behalf of many of these athletes. In some cases, we are certain that the athletes themselves commissioned them. But in other cases, we're not certain. And it may have been that uh, the town or some, some other patron 
um, uh, commission these poems from these uh, Epinician poets, poets who wrote victory odes, such as Pindar, and another famous such poet was Bacchylides. So there were tangible rewards at home, less tangible rewards at Olympia. But the inducement to compete was the fact that it was the Olympic Games, it was the most important, most significant, and most famous athletic event in, uh, in, ancient, um, in the ancient Greek and Roman worlds, and um, that uh, one was striving for everlasting glory. Um, and in fact, they got it because uh, their names were, the names of the victors were recorded. We know a number of them today, and we're still talking about these guys today. So, so in a sense, they achieved what they set out to do. You mentioned um, approximately 45,000 spectators would attend the games at, uh, on some, some years. Um, do, do you have any sense of how many city-states at its height would have been rep, uh, represented at the games with athletes? Any sense? Among the spectators or among the athletes? The athletes. The athletes. Well, the problem is, the answer is no because we don't, we don't have the names of all those who competed. We have the names only of those who won. And we also don't have all of the names of those who won. So we don't have a complete roster. We don't know whether there were hundreds and hundreds competing or whether there were 10 for each race. We simply don't have that information. Um, uh, based upon the number of athletic events that were held, um, we can we can guesstimate something like uh, several dozen athletes who won in any set of Olympic Games. But then we have to multiply that several times over to know how many were competing. Um, and then in addition to that, we have the number of spectators um, from, from ancient authors who actually tell us how many were there. Um, but uh, where they were from is very hard to say. One, one has to imagine, I think, that spectators were coming in the heyday of the Olympic Games from all over the Greek world. Um, uh, we know, based upon the kinds of monuments that were put up at Olympia, um, that the kind of patronage was extremely widespread throughout the Mediterranean world, and that anyone who was someone in the ancient Greek world wanted to leave their mark at Olympia and wanted to see these games. What's the, um, does, does the architecture support the, the estimations of the 45,000 uh, spectators on, on some, some years? Um, the, the estimating numbers has come up with various guests in the past on this, this show and, and that topic I, I understand can be a challenging uh, one. Um, what's the level of so? Is there is there architecture that that scholars believe supports the figures of forty five thousand? And what's what's the level of veracity that um, scholars put to those to those numbers? That's an excellent question. Um, in most cases, when we're when we're working with these uh, estimates of numbers of people attending things, um, we don't have a lot of really good hard information. In the case of Olympia, we have, as I said, we have ancient authors who actually give us numbers about how many people were there. They'll say, for example, that Alexander the Great made such and such an announcement at Olympia in front of 45,000 people. 
So we have that kind of information, but as a kind of check on that information, we do have something architectural, and I say that in inverted commas, and that is the stadion at Olympia, the, the stadium where people could be seated. And based upon the estimate of the number of people who could sit in the stadion um, and observe the games, we, we can verify that number of 45,000. Um, now, the, the size of stadia um, uh, were not always exactly stable, and we have, to, um, we have to concede that the Olympic Games, this was something very special, so 45,000 at the Olympic Games is probably a top number for who would attend these uh, athletic games of any kind. But at the Olympics, we know that in the fourth century, uh, as, I, as I just mentioned, we have this event where 45,000 were present. Okay. Prize only for the winner, or were there prizes for other uh, positions? Prizes only for the winner. There was only one winner. There were none of these consolation prizes that we have today, no silver, no bronze, only for the winners. And that was true in all four of these Pan-Hellenic games. There was, there was nothing uh, like that. Um, so the winners won and everybody else lost. I've read before, and I think I've, I heard it years ago as well, about a, um, a truce that occurred amongst the, the states and communities that were involved during the ancient Olympic Games. Can you speak more about what, what, that, what that was? Yeah, we have um, written evidence about this Olympic truce, and this truce um, was designed so that Olympic athletes and spectators could travel to Olympia safely. And so the idea was that, that warring states, uh, or warring states, those who were at war, would suspend their activities um, during the time uh, just before, during, and after the Olympic Games, um, and that, that new hostilities were not to, um, to erupt during this period of time. And this truce was, was meant to be held. Um, we. Yeah, we have one account, uh, it wasn't during the Olympic Games, we have one account of battle actually taking place at Olympia, in the sanctuary at Olympia, but not during the Games, um, so not covered by this truce. Other than that citation, and you said that it's believed that's not, it wasn't during the Games, there's, okay. there's no, yeah, there's no evidence that that truce wasn't honored by the, uh, by the states? That's right. There's no evidence that the truce was broken. Okay. Uh, you spoke about the relationship that the games had to deities. Is there anything else you want to add on, on that point? Was it, um, you mentioned Zeus earlier, you mentioned Hera. Um, is there anything else that you want to add in terms of the, the relationship that the ancient Olympic games had with um, uh, traditional Greek gods? Yeah, well, the games, the Olympic Games, were originally conducted, I mentioned the stadion, the foot race, as being the earliest event. We, we surmise, and most scholars would accept, that in uh, the very earliest form, the athletes running their foot races would run towards the altar of Zeus. They would run with that as a goal. And that as they approached the altar, the god himself would choose who won the race. 
And so it wasn't only about the talent of any given athlete or the effort, but the God himself makes the choice. So that um, to be chosen to win is, is also something very special um, about the Olympic Games, right? Um, but also this, this shows a very close connection between the athletics and religion at Olympia. Um, and later in time, the stadion, the stadium itself, was physically moved a little bit further away from the altar, not very far, but a little bit further away from the altar. So the connection is not as strong. But in the early phases, it was supposed to, it was one ran right to the altar at Olympia. So a very close connection between those things. Was there any other um, gods for the, any other traditional Greek gods for the uh, ancient Olympic Games other than um, uh, Zeus? I know Hera, Hera, it sounded like, was associated with the uh, Heria. Um, was, was, any, was any other traditional gods associated to the uh, ancient Olympic Games? No. Um, there were many, many other deities worshipped at Olympia at various altars um, and in uh, some temples. But there are no others who are closely connected to the games. Um, uh, you're right about Hera. She was uh, the, the deity honored by the Haraya. But uh, no other gods were closely connected to the games, no. Okay. Um, let's cover Judy governance um, of, of the games, um, including uh, Rome gains hegemony in that, in that region at, at some, some point in the ancient period. Um, but before we get, before we get there, uh, is, it, is it that A-list? So, so there had to have been a group that administrated the games. So, so what's known about um, what body or group of people actually administ administrated the, the ancient Olympic games? We have the names of many, many different officials. I don't mean their personal names. I mean the titles of the various offices they had at Olympia. Um, uh, there were Helenodikai, for example, who were the judges, and various other um, uh, administrators at Olympia. And one has to think about not just the games themselves, the, the actual judging of the athletics, but like the whole event was a huge thing. It needed a lot of coordination and um, uh, people to arrange housing and to, and to observe the training and to arrange for the training at Olympia. Athletes, I, I failed to mention, athletes had to come a month prior to the games and stay at Olympia and train there. And so this was a huge kind of operation. So we know that there were all these different offices and they were filled by Eleans. And in some cases, we know the names of the Eleans. We have various kind of honorific monuments to uh, the various office holders that were erected um, from the fourth century BC onward into the Roman period. So there were lots and lots of people involved in this event. Okay, and it, would it have been, um... The, the closest uh, polis was, my understanding, is, is Aeolus. So would, would they have had a, a large hand in, uh, in providing bodies to, it, to administer the games? Well, Aeolus was, was actually not the closest polis, hmm. but it is the one that had control of the games. And um, their officials, certainly they had officials at the site 
kind of year-round uh, looking in on things. And in some, according to some thinking by on the part of archaeologists and historians, um, the Alean Boule or council, the actual governing body of Alis, um, is thought perhaps to have met at Olympia. So they're on a regular basis, not just every four years. Um, but they're pretty much, you know, with the, at regular intervals. So there had to be officials there at, um, all the time. And so um, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a distant kind of relationship from afar uh, all the time. And we know, for example, that there were guards at the site. This was one of the offices that was, that was held, and it was usually held by lands. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that, that, that point about Aeolus. Um, so when Rome had hegemony, gained hegemony in the region, did the ancient Olympic Games change at all? The, yes and no. Um, when, when the Romans first took over, no, the games didn't change. Um, and and they, the games continued to take place um, all throughout this period from, from uh, their very early inception all the way until the early 5th century AD. We have evidence that they were taking place still then. Um, so even after um, uh, Christianization was moving into Greece, the games were still taking place. In what format um, is not entirely clear, but we have information about uh, um, the late uh, victors, Olympic victors whose names are, are given down to us, so we know that they were occurring. Um, but in the Roman imperial period, um, the games became, and, and actually before that period, the games became less amateur in their form and more professional. That is, that from the fourth century BC on, we know of some cities who were paying athletes um, to go and compete in the games. So, um, so there was some of this. How much we don't know. We only know a few cases of this. Um, the, there is an argument that the from from earlier scholars, and by earlier I mean in the mid-20th century, scholars were arguing that the popularity of the games um, seems to have dropped in the Hellenistic period and the early Roman period and then revived. But in fact, I've argued in my book that that is not true, that the games and Olympia itself um, maintained a very high standard of attraction to the public all throughout their history. If I recall the last time we chatted, You'd mentioned that there was a, a, a period, a, a century. It was certainly in the current era, um, uh, I recall. Please bring, uh, bring it up in, in your response as necessary, where the, the records are more, become more scant. But you had said that it's believed that the game still continued. Can you, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, that's the very late period. So the, we have... The last Olympic victory that we know of is in the late fourth century AD. But, um, and after that, we don't have written records. But there is some archeological evidence um, that has suggested to some scholars based upon the site's continuous use and no changes occurring until later that the games may have continued into the early fifth century AD. So that's, that I think is what you're referring to. Any sense uh, why the um, 
So are you saying that it's believed that the games uh, did stop by the 5th century? Yeah, they're thought to have stopped in the 5th century AD. We know that, and I failed to say this earlier, um, we know that um, in, in the year 398, um, that the Roman Christian Emperor Theodosius um, uh, for, issued a decree forbidding the uh, worship of pagan gods. Um, it doesn't specifically say you can't have these athletic games, but it for, forbade the worship of these pagan gods. But um, uh, as, is the, as was the case in many places, we know that uh, religious activity continued in various locations uh, in spite of this prohibition. And so there was some official effort to control um, uh, the activity of these pagan activities. But in fact, we think that at Olympia, and we know in certain cases, that they continued on for some time later. Okay. Is there anything in this conversation, working our way to wrapping up the, the, the dialogue, Judy, is there anything in this conversation that you feel we haven't touched on that you really want to make sure gets across in this episode today? Well, I think many, many students often assume that um, a lot of the things that hold true for modern Olympics were true of the ancient Olympics. And there are a few important distinctions um, I'd like to draw and, and ask a few questions because we don't know the answers to them. So um, one important thing is that in the modern Olympics, we have team sports. In the ancient Olympics, there were no team sports. And um, this is especially puzzling because we know that in the 6th century BC, in the 500s BC, an event was added to the Olympic roster that suggests a very tight connection between athletics and warfare. And that event that was added was the armed foot race, also called the Hoplitodromos, where the competitors in this foot race had to wear full armor of hoplite soldiers in this race. And we're talking about 40 pounds of bronze armor that they would wear during this race. And of course, the, the immediate connection is with warfare, where one has to run yeah, uh, on the battlefield or, or charge. And um, in this case, this was an individual competition. But we know that hoplite warfare was not conducted as an individual hand-to-hand -hand combat, but that the army moved in phalanxes, in lines. And the lines had to stay together. And I'm not going to go into tremendous detail about how this worked, but it was essential that the lines held and that the soldiers stood very close together. And it was essential because the, sh the shield of the person standing next to you um, covered half of your body. And your shield covered half of the other guy's body on the other side. So that if the line began to break apart, um, the entire line was vulnerable, physically vulnerable to the enemy. So this form of warfare demanded a kind of discipline and uh, teamwork that one would expect reflected in the Olympic Games if, in fact, the hoplitodromos um, was really closely connected with hoplite warfare. And it seems that it must have been. Otherwise, why, why wear the armament that belonged to a hoplite soldier in this race? Um, so there were no team events, and that seems rather puzzling in light of this development. 
Another important distinction between modern and ancient Olympics is this um, uh, factor I alluded to earlier about nationalism. Nationalism plays a huge portion, uh, a huge part in the modern Olympics, and I don't need to elaborate on it, it's quite obvious. But this was not the case in the ancient Olympics. So there are some important distinctions though that one needs to keep in mind, and of course, the ancient uh, athlete, the ancient Olympic victor did not have um, uh, endorsement deals with various um, athletic wear sponsors and things like this, and they weren't featured on boxes of cereal. Um, but um, as I've said, the rewards out of Olympia were, were not tangible ones, but the rewards that they received outside of Olympia could be substantial indeed. The, uh, the warfare um, sporting type event, um, can you can you elaborate, Judy, on on what's known about that actual um, sporting event? How that actually worked from a competitive perspective? We have very little information. We simply have ancient writers who who mention the appearance of this event. Pausanias, in fact, mentions it, and he is the one who specifically connects it to warfare. He says this was added to training at Olympia in the, in, the, in this particular Olympiad. He gives which Olympiad it was, and from that number of Olympiad, we can um, uh, coordinate that with the year in the 6th century BC. So he says this, and we have um, vase painting images of uh, the competitors running in this armed race. And so we know what it looks like and what they were carrying and what they were wearing. And that's what we know, not more. Okay. The last time we chatted at the end, Judy, we are chatting about some different... Um, research projects that are on, on your mind. Um, I think you were saying you're gonna do some work potentially in the future on um, some of these different um, uh, uh, city-states, um, Hellenistic city-states and, and their um, relationship back in, uh, um, from a uh, sanctuary perspective, back in sort of the mainland Greece area. I think you'd also mentioned that something that fascinates you is the um, is some of the logistical items around the games. So, uh, what, what are you thinking about these days? Are you are you gonna are you have you uh, progressed any of those projects, or are you gonna take any of those on coming up in more in a more substantive way, or you you're working on anything else these days? Well, I'm working on an awful lot of things and juggling many balls these days. But one of the things I'm doing concerning logistics is. Um, in my interest in that subject, logistics in Greek sanctuaries, um, was realized or, or inspired in part um, by a conference that I co-organized with two others um, uh, a few years ago. And this was called Logistics in Greek Sanctuaries. And I organized that with Professor Gudrun Aykroft at the University of Uppsala and Dr. David Scahill in Athens. And uh, the, the conference took place in Athens and we are now editing those papers for publication. And so that is one thing that I'm working on um, and adding final touches to my own paper. Um, but uh, and the other project I'm working on and, and will be working on for several years now is uh, a book that grows out of my work on Olympia. This new book that I have in mind concerns the role of uh, Greek sanctuaries in the Aegean and their relationship with the Greeks who were living in Western colonies, um, particularly in Magna Graecia, that is in Italy, uh, South Italy and Sicily. 
these Greek colonists in uh, Magna Graecia had uh, a very strong relationship with some of the Greek sanctuaries to their east, that is back on the mainland and in the Aegean islands. And this relationship persisted many, many centuries after these places had been colonized. So it wasn't some, you know, immediate uh, tie to the homeland that kept them bound to these sanctuaries because this tie persisted over centuries long, long after a colony had been founded. So my interest is in what these connections were, why these sanctuaries further east were of such importance to these Western Greeks, particularly when the Western Greeks had established their own sanctuaries in South Italy and Sicily to the same gods in many instances, but they continued uh, to be enthusiastic and active participants and donors to sanctuaries further to the east. And um, I'm interested in this kind of network of traffic in the Mediterranean uh, between these sanctuaries and the Western Greeks. So that's, that's the next big project, which is going to occupy me for a few years now. I'm glad you elaborated on it because you did a lot better explaining it as I did in the question. <laughs> 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 Always great chatting with you, Judy. Thanks for coming on the show again. Thank you, and you're welcome. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Berenger wrote and is forthcoming, Olympia, A Cultural History. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Judy and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.